0: Mid-September of this year, a young Iranian woman named Masa Amini died under suspicious circumstances after her arrest by the morality police for improperly covering her hair. Her death set off a huge wave of protests across Iran, the biggest in many years. The protesters' rallying cry was, women, life, freedom. And women have indeed taken a prominent role in the demonstrations that followed Amini's death. There have been protests against the regime in Iran before, but they've never yet resulted in the collapse of the very unpopular regime of the Mullahs. What is happening in Iran and what is likely to happen in the future? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Ali Ansari, who's Professor of Iranian History and Founding Director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. In 2018, he was elected Honorary Vice President of the British Institute for Persian Studies, and in 2016, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. His publications include Modern Iran Since 1797, now in a third updated edition from Taylor and Francis, Iran, Islam, and Democracy, the Politics of Managing Change, also in a third updated edition, Iran, a very short introduction from Oxford University Press, and the Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran from Cambridge University Press in 2012, among others. He joins us today from St. Andrews. Thanks for being with us today, Ali Ansari. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. So maybe we could just uh, go over where we stand, uh, you know, with a brief account of what happened in Iran and what's happening now. The demonstrations that followed Masa Amini's death in September are no longer front-page news,
1: but have they, in fact, ended in the meantime? Well, we witnessed some of the most intense and widespread protests in the country for uh, several years, and they've been going on really... uh, fairly consistently for the past 10 weeks. They seem now to have subsided slightly, but it's far too early to say that they've burnt themselves out. The protests are still occurring throughout the country, if not on the same scale. There's lots of individual acts of resistance that are taking place. But also, I think what's more interesting is the way the regime is trying to find ways in which it can try and reconcile itself to what's going on. It finds the demands of the protesters quite difficult to comprehend, really, within its own Islamic worldview. Or well, Islamist worldview, and uh, certainly it's been somewhat sort of shaken by the fact that the the protesters are so young. I mean, they're not only really so young, but also many women are involved, obviously, in in, in leading these protests. So it has caught them uh, off guard. It's certainly not, you know, the only protests that have taken place. These 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 protests are the latest in a sequence of of, of pretty violent protests and and their subsequent repression, of course, over the last few years. And so, you know, they're part of a continuum. So we're likely to see this sort of occur in waves. Um things may quieten down for a little bit. Uh people will be catching their breath. People will be working out what to do next. But certainly I think we're a long way from saying that this is uh this is over. Um in large part also because this fight this time around this protest if you will is very ideological it's not economic really in its origins it's not even really political even though obviously the the ambitions are political but the fact is that there is an ideological gulf between the protesters and the regime that is so wide now uh, that it's it's difficult to know how it's going to um, how it's going to unfold Interesting. So, I mean, as you
0: spoke, I thought about what's been going on in China and uh, the way in which, you know, there's a very clear kind of uh, spark that has generated all these protests in in China um, and. You know, it also opens out onto larger issues of, of democracy and free speech and those sorts of things. Even, you know, the idea of bringing down the the Xi Jinping regime. Uh, but maybe you could talk about, you know, how the situation in Iran compares with that story. I mean. The spark may have been the death of uh, Masa, uh, 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 ahini but uh, then there's the question of what are the larger kinds of concerns that people are motivated by?
1: I think that's quite right. I mean, I think a number of people have tended to focus very much on the issue of of uh, Amini's death as a result of, you know, her being taken to custody because of poor veiling and and have basically seen it uh, through the prism of a. Uh, of a protest against mandatory hijab or mandatory veiling. But, of course, that's only a catalyst for a much, much deeper resentment that's built up in Iranian society. And the demands, you know, very much like in China, in actual fact, I mean, there's some really interesting parallels to be drawn here. The demands are for basically uh, fundamental rights, you know, rights that we would in many ways in the West take for granted, as to be said. But what they're looking for in Iran, I think, is a much more secular type of government, Um by which I I don't mean irreligious, by the way. I mean, their their understanding of secularism is very much taken from a sort of an Anglo-American model of the Enlightenment, which is basically the separation of church and state. They don't want to see uh, religion and politics conjoined. They think it's bad for religion. They think it's not very good for politics either. They have argued this for some time. This has been going on for decades, actually. I mean, interestingly enough, in the early 2000s when there was a reformist president in power, he actively engaged with the argument that actually the model the Iranians should look at is the United States, and would quote the Tocqueville and Democracy in America very favorably, actually, in pursuit of uh, an agenda. But of course, that was not to be. The hardliners within the regime were much keener on this sort of theocratic state around this uh, the, this uh, clerical figure, known as the the uh, supreme leader in the vernacular, but really a, a guardianship of the jurist, the supreme jurist, and uh, this individual has an enormous amount of power and authority. Certainly, granted. I mean, has, has developed. I mean, I think people in the West don't fully comprehend uh, that this is not someone who believes that they're anointed by God, or, you know, some sort of divine right monarchy on a, on, on on a seventeenth or eighteenth century Western model. This is actually someone who believes that their role uh, makes them the representative of of the divine on earth, and they are accountable only to the divine. You know, they're not accountable to the population. And as a consequence, this, I think, makes for a very, very difficult and very bad government, and uh, people are fed up with it. So if you look at the demands, the demands are there. They're fairly well articulated. Actually, in an anthem, they've sort of developed a a popular anthem that was taken uh, by a singer in Iran, who has obviously since been arrested. But he took down all the demands and and requests and and yearnings of of young people that had been put on various social media platforms. And he articulated it into a, a composition which went viral. I mean, has been extremely popular. And that, in many ways, articulates the demands of the protesters better than anything any manifesto could do, if I can put it that way. But it's very clear that what they're looking for is an end to the Islamic Republic and ideally, I think, you know, the establishment of some sort of just republic. I mean, they 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 want a normal state, if I can put it that way. They don't want a revolutionary state anymore in this sense. And they certainly don't want a religious revolutionary state.
0: Oh. Interesting. Uh, I mean, as it happens, I just, you know, back to this parallel or possible parallel with China, uh, you know, I was reading something yesterday, I think in foreign foreign policy by Yasheng Huang, who also kind of, you know, talked about Tocqueville in the context of the sort of Tocqueville paradox where, uh, you know, the autocratic regimes are at their most vulnerable when they kind of relax themselves a bit. Right and suggesting he was suggesting that that's kind of what's going on in Mm -hmm. contemporary China. But, uh, you know, the sort of importance of liberal uh, currents and liberal ideas in Iranian, in the Iranian story is, I think, something, you know, you know, something about. And uh, it goes back a long way, right? I mean, people my age, you know, 60-ish, have only known Iran as, you know, the regime of the Mullahs, more or less, right? I mean, I was 18 or something when that uh, revolution took place. So, and I didn't know a hell of a lot about Iran at the time. So, so you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the way these impulses have uh, jostled with each other in, say, 20th century, you know, Iranian well, history.
1: I mean, you know, one of the things that I I, I think is quite interesting from a historical perspective is that, and, and as you quite rightly say, you know, for those of us who are basically the certain generation, and uh, I, I think we're alike to be honest, uh, we've only known this sort of Islamic Republic. I mean, I obviously grew up in Iran in the Shah's period, so I knew a different type of Iran too. But there was generally a, a narrative developed after the Islamic Revolution in 1979 that actually Iran in 79 had reverted to the norm, the norm of its culture, that had gone back to something which, you know, the Shah or the secularizing monarchs of the early uh, you know 20th century had taken Iran off the wrong way, you know, and, and, and tried to make Iran westernized in that sense. And that's a narrative that is, has, has taken hold of a lot of people and particularly in, uh, many social scientists in the West and, and many people, as you say, have known nothing else. And they, they, in a sense, they have normalized what's happened in Iran. Now, for many Iranians, of course, and those of us who study Iran, we know that actually Iran has a very, very strong tradition of humanism and a very strong tradition of sort of liberal humanism. Now, that's not to say that it's been, you know, the society is not conservative of the small C. But the fact is that for the better part of 150 years, there's been a very strong drive in Iran towards a, a sort of a progressive modernization, uh, the adoption of, of what we would describe as broadly liberal values, right, in terms of political governance uh, and, and the organization of, of, of the polity. They haven't, <clears throat> beg your pardon, really achieved that in a practical sense, but in a series of movements in the 20th century, including a very important revolution at the beginning of the 20th century known as the Constitutional Revolution, uh, which basically laid the foundations and the template for modern Iranian politics, by the way, it's, it's largely been overshadowed by the Islamic Revolution. Of course, most people don't know about it, because of course, it's not something any of us are, in a sense, we have proximity to in terms of our uh, lifespans. But the fact is that In my view, certainly, if you look at the uh, if you look at the history of Iran and if you look at the political history of Iran, the constitutional revolution, I think, is far more important uh, in terms of the development of that that country than the Islamic revolution. And there is an argument really to be said that, you know, in many ways, the Islamic revolution and that move towards a much more Islamized society was the aberration, not the, 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 the return to the norm. And that what you're seeing now in Iran is an attempt to get back to that sort of center ground, if I can put it that way. Again, it's not to say that you're going to eliminate religion from Iranian society. Of course, that's not the argument. The argument is that you need a proper balance between Islam and the republic, as some in the Islamic Republic had sought to do, but had since failed. And I think people now realize that that marriage of Islam and democracy is actually extremely difficult to do when you have this sort of theocratic overpowering state on top of everything. And that actually the only way you can protect religion, as many people a hundred years ago really ascertained, was to keep those two elements of, of public life quite distinctive, you know, quite separate. Not to say that they, you know, religion would not have an influence on politics, of course it would, but that it wouldn't have a direct and everyday, you know, role in the minutiae of government.
0: Right. Interesting. I mean, here, there's sort of a parallel with Kamala's Turkey, I suppose, as well, to some extent, to some extent, extent.
1: yeah, but I I, I would take the, the reason why I would make a distinction there. And the reason why I've also very specifically said a sort of an Anglo American model is, of course, that Kamala's Turkey takes a very francophone model of the state in which religion comes under state authority in this case. It's not what in, in Iran, what they're actually looking at. What they have looked at is a very much an Anglo-American model, which is a distinctive view of the way in which the state develops much more in a way, decentralized, almost one could say federal in its structure. OK, I don't want to over that argument, because obviously the, the British model and the American model are different in particular ways. But of course, they they do share that notion that you devolve power as much as possible to the localities and you don't centralize as much as, as say, the French state would, which is where the Turkish Republic really took a lot of its ideas from.
0: Absolutely. Durkheim was a founding father of modern Turkey in sort yes. of odd ways. But um, in any case, uh, you know, this is interesting, I think, about the relationship between Iran and Tur- and, uh, sorry, in the United States. And You know, uh, Iran was not a particularly popular country when uh, it was holding a bunch of our diplomats uh, in the early aftermath of the revolution. But, you know, now that uh, uh, Turks, Iranians are out protesting on the street, you know, you have this sense that the American people, at least, are, you know, generally pretty supportive. It came up in the World Cup uh, as a kind of... Political issue in a kind of non-political setting, supposedly, um, but it's you know an interesting question. What should the what should the American government be doing? I mean, I think in the past they have often felt like they have to be careful about how much they support protest in places like this because it's you know then the protesters come to be portrayed by the regime as you know uh, tools of the CIA. So, I mean, how do you see that all developing?
1: It's a it's an. Ex- extremely delicate situation i think as you quite rightly say because of that historical relationship and the historical relationship that goes both ways of course and the iranians will look back in a a sort of an official capacity obviously to 1953 and the coup and so on and so forth and uh but of course it, it's it's interesting because i think you know the relationship is a good deal more nuanced than than some of the the ideological expressions uh uh will have it and you know you draw attention to the world cup i mean one of the striking things about the recent world cup match is when the iranian team lost i mean a lot of them were crying on american shoulders i mean it was really quite extraordinary when you saw it and the american team was extremely i think compassionate and caring in terms of its approach i mean it was a reminder there that actually and this is something that i i like to make and i've written about that the the problem and, and I say this both in an Anglo-American way as well, because it's a British and American problem with Iran, is that the, the problem in a popular sense has been that actually the expectations of the Americans and the British have been much higher in terms of Uh, their political expectations of what these two countries can deliver. And because these two countries are seen to have not delivered, to have let the Iranians down in a sense, that's where the emotion becomes extremely tense. And I always say to people, if, if people feel betrayed, there has to be something to betray. I mean, this is the point. You don't get the same sort of emotion with the Russians. Okay, because the Iranians sort of don't have any expectations of the Russians, but they did have expectations. And I think that's an important distinction that you have to, I think, has to be appreci- appreciated in both London and Washington. So, you know, what can the Americans do, or the British do for that matter? What can they do? Well, of course, one has to navigate this carefully. Also, what I would suggest is you shouldn't you don't need to tiptoe round in this sort of, uh, uh, you know, fairly anxious way, because, you know, as, as you quite rightly pointed out, the regime will say, oh, well, this shows their CIA operatives and so on and so forth. And they're disturbing. this. Interestingly, at the moment, the target of their ire is actually Saudi Arabia. It's not America at all, which is which is very interesting. And they're also very focused and targeted on the Germans and the French, which is uh, quite striking, given that normally it's the British and the Americans. So. I think, you know, while they do have a focus, the regime will always have a focus on blaming foreigners for what they think is going on. But that's that's pretty par for the course for any autocracy, by the way. No autocracy likes to say it's our our fault. You know, someone else has caused this problem. I think the Americans in many ways now can afford to be a little bit more uh, on the front foot, if you will, in terms of looking at these protests. So I was very struck, for instance, personally, that Obama in a moment of reflection recently said that He regretted not having been more forceful in his uh, or more explicit, shall we say, in his support for the Green Movement in 2009, which is it's the Green Movement that really forms the the intellectual or or the the political sort of uh, ancestor in a sense of these revolts. I mean, they're they're very tied in that sense, uh, in terms of an immediate uh, protest. But that was very striking that he said that, because I think, you know, the Americans shouldn't be shy about, you know, When you Like I say to my Western colleagues, you know, don't be afraid to take yes for an answer. You know, I mean, the Iranians are calling for something which are basically what we would term, uh, you know, basic human rights, fundamental rights, uh, things that the Americans uh, and and other Western democracies have been very, very, you know, prominent in, in defense of. So when countries and people call for this, I think it behoves you, you know, not to be shy and say, yeah, you know, this is something that, you know, we can relate to. You know, I mean, it's, it's it's something we can appreciate and it's something that within the limits of what can and cannot be done, we're happy to at least to give, um, you know, a verbal support, emotional support, shine a light on it, maintain communication, so on and so forth. I mean, I think one has to be very careful how far one goes down the path of sort of like, you know, um, uh, intervening, so to speak. Well, I don't think there's any merit in that. But uh, certainly what I would not do, uh, which has been a problem, I think, in the past, is do things that assist the other side, if I can put it that way, you know, that make life easier for the repression. You know, don't allow that to happen. There was a very famous document that was issued in the aftermath of the Constitutional Revolution in 1906, where uh, Iranian revolutionaries came to London to try and solicit support from the British, who had lost interest, sadly, in the Constitutional Revolution. And uh, they put it very nicely, actually, and I can't put it any better. They said, we're not asking you to come and intervene in our revolution. We can handle our revolution. What we're asking you to do is to stop the Russians intervening in our revolution. (laughs) And I thought that was very well put, you know. And at the moment, of course, uh, because of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia's own involvement, I mean, what's very striking as well is that we're in a situation where the Russians are not actually in a position to help the autocrats in Tehran at the moment, which is another interesting parallel with earlier periods. Right. Well, you've mentioned the
0: the Russians a couple of times now, and I wanted indeed to get into this uh, question now of the current context, uh, the fact that the Iranians have apparently thrown in their lot with the Russians are supplying a lot of weaponry, apparently. Uh, Maybe you could talk about the history of this relationship and what kind of may explain why they're taking sides with the russians in this context
1: so traditionally i mean traditionally the the, the russians and the british were the two imperial powers that basically uh put lots of pressure on iran in the 19th century and the early 20th century and uh if you look at it in in if you look at the metrics if you will um the russians have always done much much more damage to the territorial integrity and the national sort of integrity of iran over the years Yet since 1979, the Russians have not really been in a position of the bad boy. It's always been the Americans, as you you know mentioned, the hostage crisis, so on and so forth. It's always the Americans that have been targeted to a lesser extent you know, the British as well. The Russians miraculously seem to have somehow managed to whitewash their imperial past. I mean, it, it's it's an extraordinary achievement, but it's partly also due with ideology and the way in which um, those in Iran as a revolutionary movement saw themselves, defined themselves very much against the United States, against global capitalism and, and this sort of thing. So, of course, that fit in rather well in some ways with the sort of a, the, the ideology of the Soviet Union. And then, of course, with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh uh, Russia no longer becomes a neighbor to Iran it's actually retreats from the frontiers of Iran Central Asia and Caucasia opens up and in some ways then in a curious way Russia and Iran become partners in trying to manage that legacy um, uh, Iran certainly has its own interests but it 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 there is a sort of a strange coincidence of interest with a with a shrunken and somewhat humiliated Russia. And of course, the nature of grievance that the Russian state then has against the West, certainly through you know at the end of the 1990s, when Putin comes into power and he sort of redefines that sort of that muscular Russian nationalism. And he thinks that the West has betrayed Russia and so on and so forth. Well, that, you know, parallels very neatly. It sort of segues very neatly with the ideology that's coming out of Iran. So there's a very strong ideological synergy between the two powers, which I think most people have only really appreciated, including myself, I should say, only really appreciated in the last year. I mean, we we nobody really understood that Putin had drunk from the well of Iranian sort of revolutionary ideology quite so deeply as 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 he appears to have done, or or whether to be honest, that relationship is much more symbiotic and, and, and cross fertilizers than, than we think. But nevertheless, there is that. And then, of course, there are much more practical considerations of the sort of the relationship between the revolutionary guard Corps and uh, the military industrial complex in, in Russia. So, again, if you think about it over the last two decades and stuff, the Russian economy is not in great shape. One of the things it can export and export quite well is military hardware. An Iranian military doesn't have access to Western Uh, military technology finds, you know, is a willing customer to that. So they build a very sort of tight relationship. And then that is extended into the sort of the, the complementary mafias, effectively, that run Russia and Iran at the moment. So they have these very tight personal relationships, reinforced by, you know, sound commercial interests in terms of military hardware sales, and again, double again, reinforced by ideological synergies. And that's basically led Iran, which you know began this revolution really on the notion of neither east nor west you know we're going to be rigorously neutral actually shifting very firmly into the russian camp and of course they had a very strong vested interest in syria they both got involved in syria the russians actually used much of uh um uh you know iranian airspace they transited through they used an airbase there so on and so on. so all this sort of stuff has been really quite astonishing but even i i have to say even i did not see the fact that you know last february as the russians invaded ukraine that the iranians would be so emphatic in their support of russia to the extent to the rather perverse situation now that the russians are actually buying an iranian weaponry i mean it's the relationship has gone in a sense in reverse um but it, it is bound i think by a, a common shared loathing of the west by the regime by the regimes I don't think it's a view that's shared by many Iranian people, I have to say. I think a lot of Iranian people find this cozying up to Russia to be deeply, deeply distressing. And of course, I should add here that it adds another layer and dimension to these protests in Iran, because what it means is that in siding up with Russia, in being so explicitly supportive of Russia and its war in the Ukraine, you know, the Europeans in particular have taken a very dim view of this. And, you know, if you look at the sanctions that are being added, you know, Iran is probably the most sanctioned country in the world. Right. But even the additional sanctions that people are putting on are actually for Iran's supply of assistance to to Russia. It's actually not so much for the protests because there's there's limited stuff you can do on that anyway. But that's, you know, I think quite interesting because it's made the protests part of a a transnational crisis. And uh, I mean, very bizarrely in my I mean, this is. To me, one of the great failings of the current regime in Iran is it's not understood in a way that by doing that, you know, we now have a situation where Zelensky in Ukraine is one of the cheerleaders of women's rights in Iran. I mean, he's doing a great job at publicizing this. Yeah. And he, because he's, you know, he sees Iran as part of the combined enemy. So it's, it, it's, it's a, it's in a remarkable turn of events. And I have to say, for those of us who studied it and sort of, it I, you know, I'm sure you appreciate, you know, a lot of us can study these things on paper and can theorize about it, but actually to see it in practice is, 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 is quite, is still quite shocking.
0: Sure. Well, none of us are uh, prognosticators, but I'm going to ask you to prognosticate sure. Uh You know, I mean, again, thinking about what's going on in China, I mean, on the one hand, there's the kind of view that this is all gonna fizzle, that uh, the Chinese have deep and broad kind of uh, uh, resources when it comes to repressing dissent. And, uh, you know, however uh, sort of vigorous these demonstrations may be in contemporary China, it's probably not gonna really end up with a lot of result. Uh, On the other hand, you know, it does seem as though the Chinese regime is relaxing some of its COVID, you know, requirements and, and constraints, and so maybe it is actually having uh, you know an effect on regime policy. So, how would you you know uh, sort of analyze that that situation in regard to Iran?
1: Well, one of the interesting things is I think, and I I can't speak with any authority on China, of course, but my my reading of it would really be that the Chinese state and the Communist Party are probably more and more robust health than the iranian equivalent um that's not to say that the chinese don't have uh, problems as you quite rightly say but i think it gives them a certain latitude to be flexible so that sort of flexibility in policy is something that actually comes from strength in iran on the other hand the sense you get is that they are actually increasingly paranoid about the consequences of their actions there's less coherence the supreme leader himself is very ill is probably not in the best of health. So that ultimate decision-maker is slightly, you know, not responding really in real time. So that's a problem. Um, There's anxiety in the elite elite because of that in Iran, but they are also haunted. I mean, this is also something that I find quite, I mean, as an academic, quite entertaining. I don't think it's very entertaining in real life, but uh, it's this idea that they're haunted by the experience of the Shah in 1978. And the what what they fear is they say their reading of the revolution seventy eight is that the Shah showed weakness, and the minute he showed weakness, people took advantage of this and realised that he was a busted flush effectively, and the revolution just gathered momentum. So, because they're so worried that this impression will be given, and it's it's a you know it's it's a damning indictment to them in some ways that they feel that you know if they show a hint of weakness, they're doomed, <laughs> basically. Um, what this means, of course, is that they can't you know they, they they're forced into a sort of a a course of action which in many ways is just going to make matters even worse i mean i i you know it, it, all they can do is they they have a you know they, they don't have any creative license in a way in terms of their response their response at the moment is really to repress but they're finding that very very difficult to to handle um not least because you know however you know, uh, however secure you feel your security forces are, there's always going to be a a question of doubt about how often the security forces will shoot on their own people. I mean, it's always going to be a question. I mean, if we think back to Tiananmen Square, of course, you know, the the Chinese brought in uh, military forces from outside, you know, Beijing to come and do the dirty work. And of course, there's an element of that in Iran, where you don't bring local, you know, local forces don't deal with local issues, you bring people from other areas. But that, it's it's more difficult in Iran. Iran is a smaller political unit, you know, than China to be able to do that and 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 to get away with that in the long term. So again, it's 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 a conundrum for them.
0: Fascinating. Well, we'll have to see whether the Tocqueville paradox plays out in Iran as well. Uh, it Sounds like that could I mean, be it's,
1: it's the interesting thing. There is, that, I mean, you you I think we raised a point about the fact that you know the Tocqueville when the regime. You know, when things seem, in some ways, are getting better, you know the regime is is most vulnerable. In some ways, I don't think that applies to Iran at the moment. I think the situation is so bad that people have nothing to lose. I mean, it always used to be an argument that you know poor people don't revolt, you know, because they they're, they're too busy trying to eat. But I think, you know, I I think that assessment has got to be re recalibrated in a sense because I think it's there comes a stage when people have absolutely nothing to lose and therefore they will revolt you know that there is that problem and it could do it doesn't necessarily need to be material poverty in a sense it can be you know political poverty if I can put it that way ideological poverty I mean people no longer have any commitment to the regime so it's not so much even that the situation in Iran has got a bit better which I think is a situation you might apply to China at the moment because of you know obviously they're materially economically doing doing much much better but Iran is just in a in a in a in a disastrous position, actually. Uh, it, it, you know, if you look at its environmental record, its economic record, in any uh, metric, it's it's painful. It's painful to watch. I have to say.
0: So maybe not the Tocqueville paradox, but the Janis Joplin axiom: freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose.
1: Well, that's, that maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe. All right. Well, we'll have to play it out and and see what happens. But thanks so much, Ali Ansari, for sharing your wisdom about what's going on in contemporary Iran. Uh, Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torbys. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.